0: of our God. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me, and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, them. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we consider and meditate on this prayer one last time from John 17, give us grace to hear what you have to say, to believe the promises that are in this prayer, and to live according to to what Jesus prayed, to put into action what we see here. Help us to believe it, to hear it, and to do it today. And we ask this in the name of Jesus and by the power of his Spirit working in us. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, this is the, the last sermon on John 17, I believe it's the fourth one. After today, we'll be heading into the, the climax of John's gospel, chapters 18 to 21, the trial, death, resurrection of Jesus. But here today, we consider these last few sentences in Jesus' prayer to the Father. So when we come to John 17... Jesus is on his way to die for us on a Roman cross just outside of Jerusalem. The burden of our sins is pressing down on him as his hour of death draws near. The wrath of God that he was about to bear on our behalf, on your behalf, was already weighing heavy on his soul. And yet before he gets crucified... He stops to pray for us. Just before he receives the stroke of God's justice, he stops to intercede for his church, his people, his bride. He stops and prays for those that he is about to die for. And in so praying, he bears his heart for his chosen people. These words uncover for us the heart of our Lord for us, his people. And this amazing prayer is recorded for us in John 17. Now let's review, as we did last week, the eight requests that Jesus makes in this prayer. Here are the eight things he asked the Father to give us in John 17. Number one, Jesus asks the Father to give us spiritual knowledge of the only true God and Of his son Jesus Christ. Verse 3. Number 2. Jesus asks the father to keep us from apostasy. To keep us from falling away. Number 3. That's in verses 11 and 12. Number 3. Jesus asks the father to make us one. As the father and the son are one. Verses 11 and 21 to 23. As we'll see in a minute. Number 4. Jesus asks the father to fill us up with Christ's joy. We consider that at length. Last week and the week before, verse 13. Number five, Jesus asks the Father to keep us from the evil one. That is, from the serpent, from the devil and his minions. Verse 15. Number six, Jesus asks the Father to sanctify us by the truth, which is the word of God. Verse 17 and verse 19. Number seven, Jesus asks the Father to convey the message of Christ to the world Through our love and unity. Verse 23, 25, and 26. And number eight, finally, Jesus asks the Father to bring us to heaven where Christ is, that we may behold, that we may see the radiant glory of the God man Jesus Christ in his exalted state at the right hand of the Father. Verse 24. And we saw in previous weeks that the focus of the prayer in verses 6 to 19 is on the disciples who are alive at the time that he praised this. We also observed that many of the elements uh, in those verses, many of the elements in verses six, verse six to verse nineteen, apply equally to us. And yet, for our sake, for the sake of all future. Believers, in verses 20 to 26, Jesus explicitly expands the horizons of his prayer to include the whole church. He says in verse 20, I do not pray for these alone. So we find out here that he's, he's really got all of his future disciples in mind. But also for those who will believe in me through their word. Now in verse 9, Jesus had said, I don't pray for the world but for those whom you have given me. Now in verse 20, he further clarifies the point. Who are those that you have given me? It's not just the disciples. And so really he's saying, I'm not just praying for those who've been with me during my earthly ministry. I'm praying for everyone who will hear their message and believe in me from now to the end of the age. So Jesus prays even for believers who don't exist yet. Except in the mind of God, because he foresees a future in which his witnesses will spread the gospel, the, the message, he calls it, the message of the good news of Jesus Christ beyond Jerusalem to all the nations, to all the peoples. He's leaving his disciples behind to establish his church, which will grow, which will increase until he returns. So the cross will give birth to a community of believers that will take the gospel, as Jesus says, in another place, to the whole world. Jesus told his disciples earlier in Matthew 24:14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Earlier in Matthew's gospel, he says, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Our Lord's vision of His ever-expanding church dominates His prayer starting in verse 20 of John 17. And Jesus knows that all future believers, just like the original disciples, all future believers need His intercessory prayer. We need Jesus to pray for us. You need Jesus to pray for you. I do as well. You and I need the powerful prayers, the, the effectual prayers of the Son of God, no less than Peter did. Remember last week, we, 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 we remembered how Jesus prayed for Peter and kept him from falling away. Like the original disciples, we're prone to wander away from the fold, prone to fall away, prone to divide. Like James and John, we're prone to maneuver and scheme for our glory rather than beholding the glory that the Father has given to the Son. Like the apostles, we need to be sanctified by God's truth, His word of truth. Until Jesus returns, believers in every time and in every place will be in great need of the unity that only the message of Jesus can create and then sustain. It was true of the apostles. It's true of us. It'll be true of our great-great-grandchildren. The major theme in verses 20 to 23, first half here of our passage, is, in fact, Christian unity. Unity. But even as Jesus prays for our unity, you'll notice that He looks beyond us. He looks beyond His church to the unconverted world, a world that stands in need of the witness that's produced by our unity, our living out that oneness in Christ. But Jesus doesn't end His prayer By focusing on our earthly duty to live in unity, in verse 24, he transitions. In verse 24, the topic of his prayer moves from the duty of believers in this world to the privilege of believers in the world to come. The final hope of every believer is the privilege of seeing Jesus in his exalted state. What a day, glorious day, That will be. Some of you know that hymn I just referenced. What a day that will be when, my Jesus, I will see and I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace. Forever I will be with the one who died for me. What a day, glorious day that will be. Well, after reaching breathtaking heights in verse 24, there, Jesus concludes his prayer with a promise to the Father. So the flow of these seven verses goes like this. The earthly duty of believers in this world, the earthly duty of believers, verses 20 to 23. The heavenly privilege of believers, verse 24. And finally, the Son's promise to make known the Father to believers. Verses 25 and 26. First thing he does is he prays for the, about the earthly duty of believers. Starting in verse 20, I'll, I'll read through 23 again. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you and me, that they may be perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Here Christ returns to this theme of oneness in the church. He's already, he's already covered this. He's already addressed this earlier in his prayer. Unity turns out to be the dominant concern, the dominant theme in John 17, Christian unity, the oneness of his church. And since Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, we can safely conclude that unity is also still today our Lord's chief concern. We need to qualify this a little bit, of course, Unity isn't his only concern, as some have imagined. Jesus doesn't want unity at all costs, as some in the ecumenical movement throughout the world would have us to believe. John 17 doesn't give the church permission to sacrifice theological integrity or obedience to the clear commands of Scripture on the altar of unity. Unity at the, at the expense of truth or obedience is not unity at all. Jesus has no interest in such false unity. That's a foundation of sand. Still, unity is foremost among Christ's concerns. Three times in our passage, Jesus reiterates his desire to see unity in his body. In verse 21, again in verse 22... And yet again in verse 23, it's like he keeps repeating himself or coming at it from different angles so that we get the point. He's asking the Father to grant us a supernatural unity, a unity that's never found naturally in the world, a unity that the flesh is incapable of producing, a unity that's modeled perfectly by the Father and the Son. Jesus is asking the Father to give the church a supernatural unity that God must give if it is to be experienced on earth anywhere. This unity is possible, and it's only possible among true believers who are united together as one at the core of their beings. It's possible because we share, as Peter calls it, the divine nature. Second Peter 1.4 says that our God and Savior Jesus Christ has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. You see, the more we partake of God's nature, the more we become one with others who partake of that same divine nature. Do you see how that works? The less we partake of the divine nature, the less we are able to experience the unity Jesus is praying for. So the closer we draw to Christ, the closer we draw to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Think of it like this. Our unity in Christ is like a... Like a pyramid or an upside down cone with God at the top, at the pinnacle, and believers at the base. And as we work our way up the sides of this pyramid or the slopes of the cone, we draw nearer to God. And as we draw nearer to God, we draw nearer to our fellow believers. At the pinnacle, We dwell with God and we dwell with one another in profound love, joy, and peace. But this unity, Christian unity, is supernatural. It's miraculous. It's a miracle that God must work because it comes from heaven and we can't find it on earth. It comes from the divine nature. It has no source here in us. And it's experienced in its fullness when we draw close to God in Christ. Hughes puts it this way, Kent Hughes. Quote, the unity for which the Savior prays is a unity that comes from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and grows as we draw near to God by being rooted and strengthened in his word. We are never closer to one another than, we, than when our hearts are genuinely focused on God. And that last sentence is golden. We're never closer to one another than when our hearts are genuinely focused on God. When everyone's heart is centered on God, disunity is impossible. Fights factions, fractures and fragmentations happen in the church when God is not at the center and when hearts are centered on something other than God. I'm going to say that again. Fights, factions, fractures, fragmentations happen in the church when God is not at the center and when hearts are centered on something other than God. Earlier I said that this unity shouldn't come at the expense of truth or obedience to scripture. It also shouldn't come at the expense of diversity. Diversity is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. Unity doesn't mean conformity. We're We're not called to be clones who think and act and dress and look exactly alike in every way. The opposite of unity is disunity, not diversity. Christian unity can exist. In fact, it must be able to exist in the midst of diverse backgrounds and skin colors and tax brackets and political affinities and languages and musical tastes and value systems. There's a limit to that, of course, when we think about value systems and other things like that, but there there must be. Be able, our unity must be able to deal with diversity in those kinds of ways. So when you read this prayer, if you read it all the way through, it's impossible to come away without seeing Christ's em- emphasis on unity, on oneness. He just keeps using those words over and over. It almost seems redundant to us moderns. So why is Christian unity so important? When, when, we, when we see something like that, we need to stop and say, what's going on here? Why not just twice? Why not just three times, but many, many times? Why all this emphasis on oneness in the high priestly prayer? Why is Jesus so concerned that we strive more And more toward unity. Well, verses 21 and 23 provide the answer. Verses 21 and 23 help us see why unity is so important. And this is this is not exhaustive of the reasons, but these two verses help us begin to see why unity is so important. Verse 21 that the world may believe that you sent me. Verse 23, that the world may know that you sent me. Christian unity is necessary for effective evangelism. The world will come to believe and know that Jesus was sent by the Father through our unity. Elsewhere, Jesus And John teach that it's through our love. And we need to see love and unity as twin virtues. Christian love produces, gives birth to Christian unity. And that love and unity is how the world will come to see with the eyes of faith that Jesus is God's son. That he is the savior of the world and that they need to put their trust in him because he can save them from their sins. That's why. That's the reason Jesus gives. The the world's pursuit of unity is futile. Ever since Genesis 3, humanity has been living in a fragmented world. And it started with Adam. When Adam told God in Genesis 3, verse 12, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit from the tree, and I ate. That's the best that the world and the flesh can come up with. And so when supernatural love and unity are authentically demonstrated to the world, it's attractive. It's even irresistible. God uses it to draw people out of the world and into the fold. But as we saw, this kind of supernatural unity Comes from God. It's a supernatural unity because it requires a supernatural work that points to a supernatural explanation, and that explanation is Jesus Christ living in us. Christian unity is an evangelistic necessity, and so we can begin to see why this is so important to our Lord. God hates disunity. He loves unity. He loves concord. He hates discord. In fact, scripture uses strong language to address the sin of stirring up division and sowing discord among the brethren. Probably aware of that well-known passage from Proverbs 6. There are six things that the Lord hates. Seven That are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Paul writes in Romans 16, Watch out for those who cause divisions, avoid them. By smooth talk they deceive the hearts of the naive. Paul says again in Titus 3, As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. So, so those who sow discord among the brethren are can be forgiven, but their behavior must never be excused. Those who cause divisions in the church commit a sin that God says is an abomination to him. And so when we see somebody doing this, when you see somebody doing this, the loving thing to do is to warn them. The loving thing to do is to remind them of how serious God takes this sort of thing. And then to call them to repentance with gentleness and lowliness. As Paul says in Galatians 6, so that you do not fall into the same sin. So why does God condemn the sin of divisiveness so forcefully? One reason is that there's a lot on the line. There's a lot at stake. A lot of unbelievers need to see our unity. The English Puritan Thomas Manton said, Divisions in the church breed atheism in the world. Now on the positive side, and this is what Jesus is saying... Unity in the church breeds faith in the world. Just as divisions in the church breed atheism in the world, unity in the church breeds faith in the world. And if this is so, is there anything more important than demonstrating authentic unity to the world? Through Christian unity. Some in the world will come to see that the Father loves believers to the same degree that he loves Christ. Did you catch that at the end of verse 23? That the world may know that you have sent me and that the world may know that you have loved them as, just as, you have loved me. The word as there means to the same degree, to the same extent, in the same way. It often gets translated even as or just as. What a wonderful statement Jesus makes here. It almost seems too good to be true. The Father loves those of us who are in Jesus in the same way that he loves Jesus himself. God loves those who are united to Christ to the same extent that he loves Christ himself. himself. The same love that he pours out on Jesus is the love that he pours out on us, his people. Do you believe that? Do I believe that? Is it too hard for you to accept the implications of what Jesus says there at the end of verse 23? Well, believing this truth will empower your Christian life like nothing else will. Because believing this, this truth, this reality, will give you an identity as a son of God, as a daughter of God that you, that you desperately need. Accepting God's unmitigated love for you in Christ will help you to soar to new heights. Because the thing that you need most of all is to know that you are a son or a daughter who is the object of the Father's love to the same degree that God the Son is the object of the Father's love. You are a son or daughter who is the object of the Father's love to the same degree that the Son of God is the object of the Father's love. Every one of you, every one of us, needs to know that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not only are we recipients of the Father's infinite and eternal love, Jesus says we're also the recipients of his glory. At the beginning of verse 22, Jesus says, And the glory which you gave me, I have given them. In what sense do you possess the glory of Christ? Again, seems too good to be true, that we're going to experience the same glory we are already experiencing and will experience the same glory that that the Father has bestowed on Jesus. Well, Leon Morris writes this in his commentary about this glory that we possess, quote, Jesus now says that he has given his followers the glory which the Father gave him. That is to say, just as the true glory was to follow the path of lowly service culminating in the cross, so for them the true glory lay in the path of lowly service wherever it might lead them. In other words, true glory is found in no other place than in the way of the cross. Enduring the hostility of the world is our glory, not our shame. Walking as suffering servants is the path to our triumph, not to our defeat. We must not become so triumphalistic that we fail to see the glory in suffering and being mocked, even. The Scottish Bible scholar William Barclay put it this way We must never think of our cross as our penalty. We must think of it as our glory. The harder the task we give a student or a craftsman or a surgeon, the more we honor him. So when it is hard to be a Christian, we must regard it as our glory, as our honor given to us by God. End quote. And it just so happens that this this path to true glory, our cross, is also the path to true unity. Humble service, humble cross-bearing, not only produces glory, it promotes unity in the church. That's why Paul wrote to the saints in Philippi, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That's how we cultivate the unity that Jesus is praying for. The unity Jesus is praying for in John 17 doesn't happen by chance. It it, it must be worked at in the same way a marriage must be worked at. When a man and a woman come together, Together, become one in holy matrimony, objectively one now. They must commit to cultivating that oneness for the rest of their lives. Yes, they've become one objectively through the ceremony and the consummation, but they must subjectively become one in experience for the rest of their lives. It doesn't happen automatically it doesn't happen without effort they must commit to loving each other the way God has loved them they must commit to doing concrete planned things that expand and deepen that oneness that began on their wedding day things like spending regular time together and forgiving each other quickly and readily the same is true of the unity of believers We must be committed to exercising genuine love. We must be committed to studying the word together. We must be committed to praying together. We must be committed to breaking bread in our homes. We must be committed to forgiving one another as Christ has forgiven us quickly and readily. We must be committed to humbly serving one another the way Christ serves us. after talking to his father about the earthly duty of believers in verses 20 to 23 and the heavenly privilege of believers in verse 24. Excuse me. He then goes on to talk about the heavenly privilege of believers in verse 24. And let me read that. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am that they may behold my glory, which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. So he transitions here from earthly duty to heavenly privilege, future privilege. And just think of it. Think about what he's saying here in verse 24. Think about what's going on here in, in the heart of our Lord. Just hours before his crucifixion, Jesus expresses his heart's desire for you to be with him in heaven and to behold his glory. To see his glory, his resurrection glory that he's anticipating here, in all its fullness, to see him in his exalted state, which he believes will happen, he knows will happen because he trusts his Father. One day, fellow believer, that is going to happen. What Jesus is anticipating here is going to be real for you. One day, you'll arrive home. The home that you've always longed for. And at that point, you'll realize that being with Christ in heaven is truly the one thing worth longing for. Even if you didn't learn that while you were here. Nothing you desire now compares to Jesus, and so, and when you get home, as Paul calls it, calls it in Second Corinthians five, you'll know this not just in your head at some level, but in your head and your heart, as you look upon the glory of your crucified and risen Lord, Jesus Christ, your God and your Savior. Second Corinthians five six to eight. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. To be at home with the Lord is to be with Jesus and to behold the glory that the Father has given him. A glory that Jesus attained by way of the cross. Are you looking forward to that? Do you long for that? Do you want anything more than that? What a day, glorious day, that will be. And finally, after Jesus prays about our earthly duty and our heavenly Privilege, Our future heavenly privilege, he finally speaks of his promise to make known his father to believers. Verse 25. O righteous father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. And these have known that you sent me. Verse 26. And I have declared to them your name and will declare it. That the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. The ESV translates verse 26 this way, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Here he reiterates a little less directly that the love that's between the Father and the Son is going to be poured out on us. God loves us with the same love that exists between them. But what we learn here, new at the end of Christ's prayer, is that the earthly duty of believers, the love and unity that Jesus calls for, is something that He accomplishes. It's something that He promises to accomplish. It's His doing, not ours. When we see it, when we do it, when we experience it, it's God's working in us so that we do and we work according to his will. It is Jesus who makes the Father known to us, and it is Jesus who increases the Father's love in us. As Jesus says there in the last verse, by God's grace, some will experience this knowledge and this love More than others. That's just how it works, right? By God's grace, some will experience this knowledge and this love that Jesus is praying for more than others. By God's grace, some will perceive more clearly than others their duty to draw near to God, to humbly serve the brethren, and to live in Christian unity. So we can see here where God... God's sovereignty, God's doing, and our responsibility to do what God requires come together in a mysterious way that we can't fully account for. But we know that we're called to do it, to grow in love and in knowledge, and yet we know that Jesus is the one who accomplishes that in us. And so may we, the saints of Christ the King Church, be among those who experience this grace More and more, may we be among those who increase in knowledge and and love and unity. More and more, may we be one as the Father and Son are one. Let's ask God to grant this. Father, thank you for this prayer. Thank you for preserving it for us. Thank you for allowing us to hear your son's prayers for us. Thank you for allowing us to to read and hear our Savior's intercession for us. We thank you for accomplishing these things in us. And we ask for the grace the grace of your Holy Spirit to continue working them in us. We know that we have not attained to perfection far from it, and so we ask you to continue your sanctifying work in us. Sanctify us by the truth, and your word is truth. Do this for the sake of Christ, for the sake of his kingdom, for the sake of his church. Amen.